What's happening, people? This is Let's Chew the Gum, the podcast where we talk about everything from A to Z while we chew the gum. You guys are in for a treat. This is a live podcast that I'm doing today. And normally, I don't I do not do my podcast live. Well, that's not true. We did the Juneteenth live on site this year and last year. But normally, we record them in the studio, and then we put them out on a particular day. But this day, we decided to do something a little bit different. So today, my guest is none other than Keith Strickland. He has a very interesting story that um, I was just compelled to bring to you guys because it's like a lot of stories that I've heard of, of failure and triumph, tragedy and victory, and his is no different. He's come back from a life that most people would find aversive to be able to make the transition. So today on the show, we're going to have him here to talk about his transition, where he was and, and where he is now. This is Let's Chew the Gum. This is Let's Chew the Gum. Let's talk about it. Welcome to Let's Chew the Gum. I'm your host, Dr. K. Each time you tune in to Let's Chew the Gum, you can be sure of one thing. We always have something for your mind. Definitely something for your mind. Without further ado, let me bring my guest into the studio. Let's welcome in Mr. Keith Strickland. My man, what's happening? Good to see you here on live with Dr. K. Let's chew the gum. How you doing? Hey, I'm great, Dr. K. And I first want to say thank you for just sharing your platform with me for having me on tonight. And, um, well, you know, man. Oh, go ahead. No, nah, no, nah, I just want to give an upfront. I apologize. I'm a little under the weather. So you're going to hear a little sniffling, you know what I'm saying? Like, this was so important to me. I didn't want to reschedule and I didn't want to cancel because I respect everything you're doing. I respect what you stand for. And I was just honored for you to have me on your show. So I just wanted to push through and make sure I was here. Likewise, man. And, and I'm glad you did because I definitely respect what you're doing in the communities with all that you've learned and, and the trials and tribulations that you've been through, man. And I always tell people, you know, it's not where you're from, it's where you're at, it's what we're doing with what we have learned. And you definitely have learned a lot and have a lot to share. We have some uh, particular guests trying to come in from the side. We, we're not going to let them on. This is an exclusive. So we're going to uh, hold off on that. But, um, man, Keith, when I was checking out your bio, man, I was thinking about my time growing up in the inner cities of Detroit and South Central Los Angeles and trying to, you know, juxtapose our, our lives together. We, you know, we have had similar trails, similar pathways, and, and probably have crossed paths somewhere in the past. But man, you, you ended up in some particular places and, and had to go through some particular things that not everybody is able to escape from. And we're talking about, you know, jail at an early age, prison, you know, from convictions to now being, you know, the founder of making the transition to where you're going back and reclaiming and putting out positive energy and to reclaim our neighborhoods, man. You know, how, how did that begin for you, man? What, what was it that led you down this particular path and then on the road to victory? Okay, so Dr. K, what I believe I'm hearing you ask is not what got me into the streets, but what got me to the place where I'm serving. So what got me, what, I believe you asked me like what 
what's um that thing that got me into servitude that got me into where I wanted to go back into my community in a different type of way? Is that the question you're asking? Well, well, well you know, I'm I'm interested in, in people hearing the whole story, man, because sometimes you know what you went through as a young person, a lot of people are going through that, been through that, and are still in it, and they haven't figured out how they can transform themselves to get out of that. And so I think it's valuable for people to kind of have the you know, the entire story as much as possible so that they can see the transition versus, you know, just seeing you where you are now. Okay. Well, uh, first, I'm, I'm an open book. You know what I mean? I, I truly believe that our life belongs to God and it's not our story. It's God's story. And I, I 100% agree with what you said. Like, you never know what somebody else is going through. You never know what their struggle is. You never know what their battle is. But when we allow ourselves to open up and to be able to be transparent, to be vulnerable, to be sincere and authentic, we allow other people to be able to learn through our lives so that they don't have to go through the same things, right? And a lot of the lessons that we learn, a lot of things we go through, they they can be, just because I felt it right here don't mean you can't use it over there. You know what I mean? It don't have to be the exact duplicate situation for you to be able to take the tools and the lessons to be able to make it a blessing for your life, right? So uh, I started selling drugs at about 12 years old. You know, like you said, bro, we from the same, we cut from the same cloth. We just out of, you know, we on different sides. Like I grew up, I'm originally from Chicago. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta. That ain't no different than Detroit. That ain't no different than LA. That ain't no different than all the other hoods, right? So same thing that I grew up watching. You grew up watching. You grew up in the crack era. I grew up in the crack era. So we was poor people who saw other folks getting money. The same way young folks see the scamming right now. They say way young girls they see getting money up out of men. The same way we see the rise of gains for our young folks right now. That was what the crack era was for us. You know what I mean? Like we was folks who didn't know how we were gonna eat every day, who didn't know exactly what the next move was gonna be. Then you know this drug magically hit our neighborhoods, and next thing you know, if you was willing to stand on the block all day, you got a pocket full of money. So you went from being this poor kid who who was stealing out of the grocery store. To being somebody who goes somewhere and you buy something and you look at somebody like they're crazy when they try to give you change because you balling them. Mm-hmm. So it's like you seeing somebody next to you hit the block first, you saw their whole life change, and then you couldn't wait for your chance to hit the block. But what each one of them stories, it don't matter what the hustle is, what don't nobody tell you is is what you selling to get that money. You selling your self-respect, you selling your soul, you selling your safety, you selling your family's security for a different kind of security. You know what I'm saying? You think once you get this money in your pocket that you're going to be able to do this and do that for your family. But what you're not seeing is, is you can't buy what you took from your family. You, you get what yeah. I'm saying? Like when you yeah. get in that game, whatever the game is, let it be, like I said, that young girl who using her body to get money. Let it be the young dude who's scamming or whatever it is. When you put yourself out there, you open yourself up to an entirely different environment. And you got to deal with everything that comes with that. And it's no different than being in business. Like now that I'm in business and you in business, we open ourselves up to what comes with business. It's just because we doing something that's more of a honorable thing, a more wholesome thing. What come with that, the problems that come with this, it don't even touch them kind of problems. You, you get what I'm trying to say? Yeah. No, I, I know a hundred percent, man. And you know, for me, I had, a, I had a, I was in those same streets, man, but I had an experience growing up where in the crack era, you know, like, everybody was like you said magically appeared it was like it was magically appeared all of a sudden our neighborhoods changed 
people wasn't getting together no more, having the, the family picnics and, you know, adults was going in the rooms and you smell this smell and, and it's just different. You know, now we got kids that's really assuming leadership roles because the adults' minds are so messed up that they can't lead and they, they're addicted to this thing. And a lot of the young kids is like the ones giving it to them. So the young ones become like the leaders in a sense, but they don't have really the mental capacity to lead. And, you know, in those environments, it, it tore my family apart, man. And, and I was angry about it. You know, I, I remember, you know, breaking up crack pipes that I saw people having affecting my family and uh, actually leaving Detroit to for safety to go to South Central LA of all places, which is, you know, some people are like, wow, you know, South Central from Detroit, that's worse. So actually it wasn't as bad as Detroit in some aspects, but like you said, bad is bad. I don't care where so, you at all over the country, right? And so in South Central, oh, go ahead. I don't mean to cut you off. I just want to give a little context to the people who are watching this. Right? Yeah, please do. Um, I'm a few years younger than you. So no you problem. got to watch crack come into the community. Yeah. I grew up with the effects of crack already in the oh, community, yeah. right? So yeah. what I'm saying about that is both of them are very interesting aspects to be able to have a conversation from, but for the person who didn't grow up in that or wasn't in the middle of an inner city during that time period, they need to understand the context of it, right? And yeah. what I mean by that is like from your perspective, you're talking about when crack got in the community. So a lot of folks don't understand crack was planted in our neighborhoods. It was a strategic plan on how to get people addicted to crack. It was a, a strategic plan on how to roll crack out. Just like say the new iPhone or whatever the new thing is, there was somebody who came with a plan. Make sure that the young, attractive, uh, almost neighborhood celebrity, make sure they got crack first. You had to give it to them first because yeah. they had to use it before they become a junkie. People had to see them do it while they were still cool. So people wanted to do it as well. It yeah. took about six months or eight months before the junkie part of crack came in. Like your body could take crack for about six to eight months before it started deteriorating your body and changing the way you physically look and start messing with your mind. That's about yeah. the lifespan of a person that uses crack every day. Yeah. Now, yeah. Economically, it could start to trigger things quicker if you can't afford to get it. But that's why crack is given to you in very cheap doses and then it gets more expensive the more you use it. So that way a person could get hooked on it. I was a career drug dealer. So like literally I was, I know drugs, you know what yeah. I'm saying? I'm not a person yeah. that dabbled in it. I made millions of dollars selling drugs. I sold drugs for 15 years. I was very successful as a drug dealer. But the reason yeah. why I'm saying this is, it's for the person watching, they got to understand how crack came into the neighborhood, decimated the neighborhood, took away the culture of the African-American, destroyed the household, and created a new breed of mindset, right? Definitely, definitely. I was born into the new breed of mindset. You were born into the destroying of the community, ripping away the household, making children lose respect for their parents because mm -hmm. the parent who you used to look up to now became this junkie. The aunt and uncle that were like the cool aunt and uncle now became this junkie. So the people who should have been your respect, your respectable built-in role models, now became the people who you look down on, you ashamed of, and who you make your money off of. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I'm hearing this because for the person watching who didn't get how their first hand experience, they're not gonna understand your very first generation of the crack era. I'm second generation of the crack era. Mm -hmm. no, that's that's important to that's down. important to point out. When you fast forward now, a lot of the people who are born right now, they're still a product of the crack era because their parents were impacted the same way we were. 
So they're being raised by a person who has a crack influenced mindset. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I want to go ahead and I'm 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 very into the conversation. I just want to make sure it's a growth based conversation for the person who, you know, no, for sure. No, it it, ha it has to be, man. It, it has to be. And, and that's what this is about. It's, it's a, a growth based conversation because, you know, we're talking about the foundations of where we were, like I said. So it's important that folks that are listening understand if you're in this situation, you know, it's a situation. It's not it doesn't have to be your continued reality because we're going to move on and, and talk about, you know, how we are able to transition from this into being more productive and talk about some of the things that you and I are both doing today. You know, I didn't make millions, man. I did it for 15 minutes because I was poor. I was homeless in high school and I got really desperate seeing everybody, you know, with all the money, fat wads, a hundred dollar bills and whatnot. But it was something I was completely against because I saw what it did to my family, but I got so desperate, man, that I, I, I just, I, uh, I, I, caved in and said, okay, I'm going to do it. I know where to do it. I know how to do it. I'm streetwise. You know, I, I know all the spots and I can do this. But when I got there, I'm, I'm looking at, like you said, all the cool aunts and uncles, the adults that I'm looking up to really that I want to lead me and be my role models and help me out of this situation of being a homeless inner city kid. Right. And I just was like looking around like, damn, aren't you the mailman? Aren't you this person? Y'all supposed to be leading me. And so I decided what, you know, what happens if when, if when when it gets raided, you know, what happens if my grandmother hear about it? It's not going to be, you know, this was this, uh, you know, inner city kid that was, uh, you know, had a bad time. You know, he was a, a smart student. He was homeless, down on his luck a little bit, but then, you know, made a bad decision. That's not what people are going to say. What people are going to say is, here's another lazy inner city kid that just happens to, you know, that you know, get rid of them. And what's my grandmother going to say that put so much into me? And so I, I walked away from it and glad I did and then made a, a different transition. But I understand, you know, I, I never placed too much judgment on folks because I understood that struggle. I understood that, that I, I, the idea behind it and the mentality of people wanted to get out of poverty and not be in it. So, you know, but you went on to do some different things, man. So I'm going to let you, you know, continue on with, you know, what happens next is that that experience you had that caused you to, you know, transition from that. Okay, so I dropped off for a quick second, uh, but no, it's all good. We kept it going. Okay, so it came back seamlessly. Yeah. Though. yeah. Um, first, I want to say I understand exactly what you're saying, brother. I was a hundred percent against drugs as well. The first time I had one of my homeboys, we were walking to a store, and normally we were still at the gas station. You know what I'm saying? Still little snacks and candy, whatever. One person go up there, buy that one thing. Why they got one person at the counter here, everybody else grass on off the shelf, breaking run. You know, it's the same. Every hood, it's the same thing. Snatches. But this time we were going into the store, he was like, oh, bro, whatever you want, you can get whatever you want. I got you. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at him like, what you mean you got me? Because, you know, this is your routine. Yeah. yeah. He said, I got you. He pulls out, like you said, that's that. He like, bro, whatever you want, go ahead. And, um, Oh, my bad. Walking to the store, walking on the way to the store, a woman out the neighborhood stopped and bought a sack from him. But this somebody mama who we done grew up with, you know what I'm saying? Because folks not understanding. When you sell drugs, we can only sell drugs in our hood because that's all we got right. access to. Right. That's the only thing you protected in. You selling drugs to the same adults who you looked up to, like you just said. These your homeboy parents. This the teacher. This the person that worked at the store. 
this the lady who might have been the candy lady type person. You know what I'm saying? Right. But somebody who you look up to who done fell off because they done got hooked on these drugs. So you really are destroying your own community when you're selling a drug. But that's another story for another day. But he, we walk into the store. He stopped, serve her, and he turned and he looked at me. He was like, bro, what you think going to happen to me now that I'm selling drugs? I'm young. I don't know nothing about God for real. I wasn't born Christian. You know what I'm saying? I found Christianity in life. I said, bro, you're going to go to hell. Because, you know, that is the bad thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that was yeah. my now, mind you, that's me watching him serve the first person I saw while we walk into the store. We get to the store. And I see what the impact of the money is. We ain't got to steal no more. We ain't got to run no more. A week later, I was selling drugs. Because I saw the impact of what having money meant. Right? Right. So, uh, I just want to let it be known, man. Like, we all come in as, like, these naive people with good hearts. And we might be talking about crack because that's our era. But it ain't no difference with the scam. It's no difference. Whatever your hustle is, it's the same thing. This stuff get in your heart. It slowly changes your heart. And I went from that person who told my homeboy he was gonna go to hell for serving somebody to being that person that did drive-bys and shooting up people's houses and dealing with cartels and trafficking drugs all across the country. Yeah. In a relatively short time period. You yeah. know, so think about it. I started selling crack first time, 12 years old. By 14, I got my own spot. By 15, I got my own trap. By 16, I bought my own house. By 17, I'm getting stuff shipped. By 18, I'm out here in these streets on the highways. Yeah. It corrupts yeah. you so quickly. Yeah. And then right. too, it's so in it's so it becomes your whole world. So the growth is, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah, no, I have seen it. I remember being in middle school seeing man, people don't believe him when I say, man, it was like 13, 14 year old kids with Benzes and all this type of stuff. And they say, What you talking about? They don't they don't understand it, you know. And 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 a lot of times, you know. Through videos, you know, everybody wanted to do the Scarface thing with the videos, the social medias, and whatever we had back then started glorifying it and making it seem like, you know, that's the way to go. That's what we got to do, you know. And, and people got a little bit heartless in terms of, you know, caring about the community and and those foundational things that's going to sustain us. And so, you know, we we got trapped, we fell in the trap, and a lot of people are, are over that. You know, a lot of people got through it. You know, that was that was a the reason why I'm celebrating this point is I just want them to understand it's the same trap, it's the same, yeah. it's just a different mechanism. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Money is all relatively the same, it's just inflation and times look different. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like when we see scammers out here right now busting it down and they get into the million scamming, it was no difference when crack hit. It's always an unbelievable amount of money. It's always somebody who you can't believe got this. It's always the same way you see this girl who got pregnant by this basketball player, got this scammer who doing this and doing that. It's the same trap. Once they saw it work one way, we can go back to the 20s with heroin in Harlem, in New Jersey. You know what I'm saying? You can go back in Philly and look at how they did the exact same thing. These are calculated steps to break down our culture get in our our heads, rip away our character, and make us love money more than we love ourselves. It's the same trick with different tools, right? Now, I know we got to move on from this point of the conversation, but the reason why I want to really hammer in on that is because crack ain't the drug no more. But it's the same cars going down the same highway, getting to the same place. You're just driving newer model cars, and you want I-20 instead of 285. 
That's it. I mean, if you're in Atlanta, you know what I'm talking about. You go, it's the same thing. They just got a different trip. The same way music influenced us, social media influenced y'all, reality shows influenced y'all. I'm, I'm really trying to speak to somebody's soul right now because I watched so many out of a hundred of my closest friends. Yeah. All of us got into the streets together. It might only be three or four of us alive right now. I just yeah. had a young man who just came to my office today. I started mentoring him in eighth grade. He's 24 years old now. He went through my programs through school, so he ain't been with me every day. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. He's a, when I say mentoring, he's a school programs. He went to a middle school. I had programs there. He got into juvenile court. He went through my programs there. So he been off and on with me. Yeah. So he's from like a rough area now. The same place Young Thug is from, from Atlanta. He's from that same as that block. I'm saying same block, right? It may have been about 30 young men out of his circle who all were kind of like him went through my programs, right? Mm -hmm. I switched up the way I've been doing my programs and plus they got older. So say the last two or three years, I haven't been seeing them as much. When he came today, do you know eight of them have been killed back to back to back? Eight of them killed. Three of them caught murder charges. One of them died in a motorcycle wreck. You get what I'm saying? It's the same trap. It just looks different. And they getting killed because the gangs are jumping. So yeah. like for us, it was our hood and crack. For them, it's they set. And you, you get what I'm saying? It's the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Now, that's I know. Why, that's why I wanted to, to get you on, on the show to be able to have some authentic authenticity to this story. You know what I mean? So people understand, you know, the stark and the dark reality. I was just mentoring some kids today talking about the same thing when I was in high school and coming through this. It wasn't uncommon for nine, 10 students classmates to be killed and not coming back to school man and and we want to we want to you know we want to make sure that that folks understand like you said you're trying to talk to some people's souls and, and you are and by the way let me give a shout out real quick to audience around the world man this is a live uh special edition of let's chew the gum the podcast where we talk about everything from a to z why we chew the gum my guest today is the founder of Making the Transition, Keith Strickland, and we're talking about making that transition from a life of inner city violence and crime and, and being inundated with drugs to where we are today and how we've transitioned to become contributors to society as opposed to folks that are taken away. And if, I don't know if you know, Keith, but this podcast is listened to in over 70 countries around the world, and I know my audience is appreciating it no matter where they are, but we're going to take a quick break a sponsor but we're going to come right back and then we're going to talk about you know how you made that transition you because i know you know you were facing some serious years in prison and somebody stepped in and influenced you to make that transition we'll be right back this is let's chew the gum where do you watch tv on watch tv nowhere on watch tv what's on watch tv on Watch TV is one of the most exciting channels on Roku and Amazon Fire TV with lots of categories to choose from, from movies to music, documentaries, and more. There's something for everyone. What if people want to place their content on Watch TV? You can. Visit the website onwatchtv.net to find out more or email onwatchtv at gmail.com. Don't forget, check out On Watch TV. See you on Watch TV. See you on Watch TV. On Watch TV is available now on Roku and Amazon Fire TV. Check it out. On Watch TV. All right. We thank you for the sponsorship from On Watch TV. Very proud of On Watch TV and how far it's coming. Two years. If you like to be on television, if 
you've always been dreaming of being on television, we make it very easy at home watch TV. It's for the underdog, for those that are disaffected by Hollywood. You want to deal with honest and good people doing good business, first time film, filmmakers, podcasters, sports, movies, you name it. On Watch TV, email on watch TV at gmail.com or call on watch TV at 213-554-6060 to be put on. And thank you so much. And we're back with my guest, Keith Strickland, for making the transition. Before the break, we were just talking about, you know, some of the, the ill factors that we've experienced as young folks in neighborhoods at different levels of the crack epidemic. And, you know, now we, we want to transition to, you know, man, you were facing 35 years, man. That's, that's you know, for some folks, they don't even live 35 years, but you were facing 35 years for a conviction. But a judge, somebody saw something in you. And I'm interested to find out. I've been waiting to ask this question, you know, because I'm, you know, not used to judges based upon what you were going through. Somebody saying, hey, I see something in this person that's going to allow me to not give him that time. What, what was that like? What was the experience with that? So uh, first, I just want to make a clarification. When you were saying that I was inundated into the drugs, it was more than just the drugs. It was inundated into being in love with the streets. And what okay. I mean by that is like when you in love with the streets, you judge when you're doing good and when you're doing bad off of, uh, like let's say this ring, for example. This is a, a VVS one diamond ring, right? So a lot of folks will look at it and be like, oh, bro, must be doing good, must be blah, blah, because they look at your diamonds. The reason why I got diamonds on, every diamond I have is dedicated to some commitment I had to God, right? Mm -hmm. So the only rings I have on my hands or when I made an agreement with God and I put something on myself to honor that commitment. Mm -hmm. So it's not to look good for the world, it's to have something that I could pass down to my children and their children so that right. it can last, right? So now I'm in love with God. So the prettiest, shiniest, most beautiful, most valuable things I have belong between me and God. It used to be a time when the prettiest, most valuable things I had, I had so I could flex on somebody else. Yeah. You got that kind of mindset when you got that kind of heart. It don't matter how you get your money. You could work two jobs. You could be completely legal. You still are in love with something negative. And that negative thing is still going to corrupt you in some kind of way. That's what I mean by I just want to make that clarification because a lot of times people don't understand we might get to it in a different direction, but we go into the exact same place. And that same place is going to cause you to be just as greedy as me, just as negative as me. And it's going to end up doing the same thing to your family as it did to mine. And what I mean by that is my only child lost her life because of the way that I live. So I, I want to be very clear. When I'm saying I'm speaking to somebody's heart, I'm speaking to somebody's soul, that's what I'm talking about. Like I want your family to be able to live. I want you to be able to have a good life. I want you to have freedom, have joy, have all the stuff that I didn't know existed on this side of the world until I changed my life, right? right. Now, going back, you said that... Uh, you, okay, so I live in the state of Georgia, Atlanta. In Atlanta, we have a, well, in Georgia, we have a three strikes law. But our three strikes law is different than the one you guys have out in Cali. In Cali, if you get three felony convictions, that third strike, automatic life. Yeah. In Georgia, your three strikes had to be in the same classification of crimes. Oh. So like, let's say that you had two uh, aggravated assaults and then you caught like a felony fraud charge, that wouldn't be three strikes because that's a, of felony classification. Yeah, that's a different classification. Like that felony fraud is gonna fall up under uh, you know, wire fraud or something like that, but it's not gonna fall up on the same classification as that those violent charges. 
But if you get two aggravated assaults and then say like a attempted murder, that's going to be third strike because even though they're different crimes, they're under the same classifications. Of so yeah. I got uh, 14 felony convictions over the totality of my 15 years selling drugs. And people got to understand, 14 felony convictions sound like a lot. I sold drugs and had drugs on me every single day for 15 years. And I trafficked drugs across the country. I was phenomenal at what I did. But no matter how good you are at your illegal activity, you got to get away with it every day. They only got to catch you one time. Yeah. yeah. So you got to be good 24 hours, seven days a week for years. They only got to catch you slipping in three seconds once. Yeah. That you're not going to win because... You get what I'm saying? Every yeah, day, gotta be doing it. all they got to yeah, do is yeah. get you once. <clears throat> Odds are not in your favor. That's what I'm saying. So uh, I got three felony drug charges, and then I got what? Well, what I'm saying, drug charges, different classification. So say you can't get your three strikes in one arrest. So if you get locked up one time, you get, uh, say, possession, possession with intent, possession with intent to distribute illegal narcotics distribution if you get all of those that's not going to be three strikes even though those might be five or six felonies they have to be in separate arrests right so i got arrested on three separate occasions with felony drug possessions then i got arrested on three separate occasions with felony weapons so violent crime illegal uh possession of a firearm firearm widen the commission of committing a crime uh, discharging a firearm in a public place. I had attempted murder charges, but all of those fall up on the same category. So in two different categories, I had automatic life. Right. Right. So I get my last arrest. And when I got my last arrest, I know I know the law really well because I grew up in it. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like if you hustle, you're gonna learn oh, the yeah. law. You're gonna learn it, yeah. You're gonna learn it the most, better than most. Part of your your system. But uh on that last arrest since I knew I was going to have to go away, I went to school. So when people got to understand, when you get out on bond, if you can afford attorneys and you can do certain stuff, it takes years to be able to convict you. You know what I'm saying? You don't get locked up today. Then if you don't get a bond, then your sentence may start right when you get locked up. But if you get a bond and you bond out, it may be 18 months. It might be 24 months. It might be 36 months before they convict you. Right. right, right. So I knew I was going to stretch it out a little bit because I got, you know, attorneys and all that. So I went to school and uh, got a degree in accounting and marketing. And it was like, uh, I had never finished high school. My highest grade level of high school was ninth grade. So I got my GED while I was locked up. I learned how to read while I was locked up, too. Mm-hmm. I traded somebody up uh, my lunch and my dinner for two weeks for them to give me a book and to sit with me and show me how to read through. So I could read, like, I could look at words and identify words, but I couldn't read, like, put sentences together, make a paragraph, then paragraph to a page, page to a chapter. Like that's comprehension. I could read, like identify words, but I didn't have comprehension skills. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I was saying, I got a degree in accounting and uh, marketing. And uh, well, it was a certificate because I went to a community college for like a shorter program. Mm-hmm. But then also got a job. It was my first time actually like having a real job or that. So I got a job at a printing company. I'm in my office right now. So at the top of, I'm on Peachtree Street, but at the top of my street, my office dead ends into the building where I got my first job. Like I got multiple offices, but I always keep an office over here so I can always remember what God brought me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I worked that job the whole time that I was out on bond. I got the degree. I 
went back and um, made things right in my neighborhood. Like I did a lot of stuff to lift a lot of the families who I hurt. So what I was doing is my daughter had passed while I was incarcerated right before this sentencing, right? So I wanted to show my daughter that I could have been the father who she deserved. And I feel like you really, the only time you could sincerely apologize by some, to somebody is by showing a change in behavior. So if you apologize to somebody and you keep the same behavior, that's not really no apology. So right. I wanted to show my daughter that I was willing to change my behavior to show how I apologize for what my life cost her, right? So everything I was doing, it had nothing to do with court. It had nothing to do with like, you know, trying to lessen my sentence. Because somebody got locked up with me and um, for them to not have to split the, the charges with me. So the person who got locked up with me was a father. He had four kids, phenomenal father. We came up together. He just happened to be with me when it happened. Mm -hmm. He knew nothing. He just happened to be in the car with me. So I took all my charges because I couldn't let my actions separate another family from Right, right, right. My actions had already hurt my daughter. I couldn't let it hurt these other four kids. So I knew I was going to get the full conviction because I'm taking the charge. Yeah. I wanted to be able to show my daughter I could have been a better man for her, right? So uh, when I went to court, and this is a thing, a lot of people ask me because they have children or siblings or they might have an open case for itself or whatever. And they ask me like, bro, you know, what, what I need to do? Like, you know what I'm saying? How do I get that opportunity? People don't get, like, I rehabilitated myself. You know what I'm saying? Like, I got an education. I got a job. I moved out of my neighborhood to, like, 45 minutes away from where I used to see girls at. So that I could see what life was like as a working class person without the influences, right? I completely changed my own life before my conviction. And when the judge, the judge asked me one day, he had put an investigator on me because my case was like a big case. With him. So he wanted to know like, who was I, what I had going on. Yeah. Yeah. The judge asked me during my sentencing, like not during the case. So, you know, you get convicted, then you get sentenced. Right. He asked me during the sentencing, why you ain't never tell me that you, you did all this? You went back to school, you had a job, you had a job. And I never brought that up in court. And he was like, you know, if you made all these changes, why you didn't let the court know? I was like, I did that for my daughter. I didn't do that for y'all. You know what I'm saying? I sold the drugs. Everything I got locked up for, I did that. So right. I'm, I'm willing to take my charges. Like, whatever happens, it happens. I'm a man. You know, it is what it is. So I wasn't trying to do this to get out of nothing. And the judge told me, uh, he sentenced me and I went away. And he called me back to court. And I'm thinking that when they called me back to court, I had new charges. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Right. You know, run your fingerprints and do diagnostics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, say a gun may have came up and they might have had this gun yeah. Yeah. somebody shot with my fingerprints mm -hmm. might have had mm -hmm. or it might have just been any kind of thing that could have came up once I went through diagnostics so right. I'm, when I got called back to court it, you know I got a new situation right Right. when I get back to court me and the judge had built a rapport with each other you know what I'm saying it's so crazy this is how God worked um, the way we ended up building a rapport with each other is uh I came to court looking like a drug dealer who on the court, you know what I'm saying? I'm clean, I'm kind of fresh every time I come to court. Right. And a young female bailiff who used to always be a little flirty with me. Uh -huh. But because I'm in here fighting for my life and she at work, it ain't the same situation. She, like, it's fun for her. For me, I'm like, you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to keep my life to the best of my ability. I know I'm taking a charge, but you get what I'm saying. Absolutely. One day she said something to me a little flirty. And uh, one of the young male bailiffs had a thing for it. So he checked me. I'm sitting at the 
in court, and you know, in court, the first row is the attorneys. You got yep. a row after that, and then the third row is where everybody starts sitting at. My last name starts with an S. So I don't sit in the front because I know I ain't going to be one of the first people to go, even though when you got bigger cases like that, it ain't a full docket, but it's still illegal. For sure. So I'm probably like on the fourth or fifth row. The man tell me to pull my pants up. Like he just snapped on me and he was like, hey, man, it's a court. Like, you know, dress appropriately, blah, blah. But I got on tailor clothes. You know what I'm saying? And you can't even see me. I'm behind a pew. So I'm a little, I'm on one. I'm already in there kind of on high energy because, you know, my life is on the line. And I snapped. I was like, bro, look, man, you'll never be me. If you are upset because this woman's choosing me, I don't even want her, but you still aren't going to be me. Even if I reject her, you're not me. You know what I'm saying? Like, you here for a job. I'm here because I'm a rich drug dealer. We're not the same. You know what I'm saying? So, in my arrogance, I went off because, like, I just was so aggravated because I'm in here really trying to fight for my freedom and you having a male ego moment, right? Right. So uh, we get loud with each other, and the judge is on the on the sand. The oh. judge, you know, he hit the thing. He he tell us to shut up. He snap, and then he say somebody escort him out of my court. So I stand up thinking I'm about to get put out. Right? He was like, "No, nah, Mr. Strickland, sit back down." He was like, "That bailiff can never work in my courtroom again." Somebody oh. him out of court because he saw him pick on me. Yeah, yeah, that's not that's not that's not his job. That is that's not professional uh, way to be in the court in the first place. Yeah. So the judge apologizes to me for that and then told me I was still wrong, but he apologized for how that happened. But right. that's how we connected. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Like after that, he started paying more attention to me. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because God is in the details. Mm -hmm. God is in the details, man. Who would have thought this man snapping on me would have built somewhat of a little friendship because the judge liked the way I handled him. You know how as a man, you might laugh at another man like you wrong, but I see yeah. you. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. So it's like you did that like a gentleman or like a king, but you still was wrong, right? Yeah. But that made the judge notice me in the courtroom a little more. Like that made it more personal, not just a name yeah. on a sheet of paper. And that's when the judge, the judge sent the investigator to my old neighborhood to go see like, who is this dude? Because the judge was like, he had never, the judge told me in his whole career, from being a bailiff to being in working actually in the correctional facilities to being an attorney. Most people don't know judges have to go through the legal system. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He said in his whole career, he never saw a man take another charge, take a charge for another man to keep a family together. Never once. And I did that on my first day. I told the judge, whatever going to happen, I'm good with it. The judge made me go through the whole court process because he was like, even though he respected what I did, I still needed yeah. a due process. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the judge told me he respected me, and then he wanted to know more about me. And that's when he found out all the things I had done in my life. And the judge called me back to court that day and told me it was no need for me to be incarcerated because incarceration is supposed to be rehabilitation, not just punishment. But you already did that. Like, we don't need to pay taxpayer dollars to rehabilitate a man who paid out of pocket and did the work itself to rehabilitate itself. He was like, if we keep him inside, we're really gonna make a more dangerous criminal because eventually one day he has to come back and yeah. we're gonna break the cycle of all the good things he has going on. So the judge was like, I would rather let him out now while he still has a relevant education, while he still has opportunity for employment, while he still has a positive like foundation and he's in a space where he feels good about who he is. Cause he was like, y'all know the potential that he has. Cause I sold, Millions of dollars worth of drugs in multiple cities and states. He right. was like, if he comes back as a harder criminal, he can do more damage. But if he comes back and believes in himself, 
that's how that's how you would think a judicial system should work right because the whole point is rehabilitation and this judge had the insight to see that you were rehabilitating yourself already he saw the responsibility you were taking with his family and he considered that right there's i don't know if there's a lot of judges or people in general in the judicious judicial system that would take that approach especially with it with a young black man so i'm gonna give a shout out and kudos to that judge for having that insight because because of his actions you were able to transition to go on to what you're doing now in the making the transition uh program that you're doing so you know so you you go from from that situation the judge you know gets you into a, a whole nother realm and gives you a new possibility on life how does making the transition come about? I mean, you're, you're making the transition. How does how does that come about as a nonprofit, as an organization that you're operating today? Okay, so uh, and I like how you did it. It was real smooth. Like I want to give credit where credit due. That was smooth. Yeah. Idea, you know, no, what I'm you have to for sure. Now I'm just telling you, you know, the transition. Keen and keen, though. You know, you got to give folks that credit. Like I do a lot of interviews. That, the way that you're staying on point to make sure that your viewers get a full story and get something with meat that they can use, like this. Oh, for sure. Appreciate it. But um, so before I went away, I owned like a barbershop, a detail shop, restaurant, um, car wash, you know, a pressure washing business, uh, all kind of different stuff. So like I, I was the person who started off as like the local drug dealer, became a bigger drug dealer, then went into business, then owned businesses, and then owned houses and all of this stuff. So like when you see the TV shows like Power and all that stuff, that really was like me and my circle. So right. I'm saying that because when I got out, I wasn't the ambitious person to say, hey, let me take this drug money and try to legalize it. I had already started doing that. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Like I had already, I own multiple businesses. I've employed hundreds of people. I had already been in that. Like I bought and sold houses. Every property I've ever bought and sold, I did the paperwork myself on. I've never had a real estate agent. And like I, the first house I bought and sold, I made like 83,000 cash, you know, profit off of that. And I'm sharing that again, because I want people to understand ninth grade level of education. I've bought and sold homes. I've built million dollar corporations. I was the first convicted felon in American history to be a consultant to a presidential administration for criminal justice reform for the federal government. And that's a little tricky because that's true, but I came in as a cohort. So even though I'm the first, I'm the first in a cohort. I think it was right. like seven of us. So I'm the first because we came in as one package. Yeah. I, I believe in transparency and honesty because you can't tell lies and try to change people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. Say I'm the first. But the yeah. truth of it is I'm the first in a group. Yeah. Right. But uh, I'm saying all that because I want people to understand if you have the same heart and you just do it legally, you didn't change. You get what I'm saying? So I, I owned the strip club too at one point, right? Like well, me and one of my buddies. And that was like me trying to do what felt like the streets, but in a legal way. So now I'm not selling drugs. I'm selling, you know, stuff that feels like the same energy, but just legally nothing changed like i was the, the same negativity i had on my life if anything it got worse because it's like you still are in a wrong space like the energy still wrong even though the laws say you can do it but uh when i got out i had a little money put up because you know i'm thinking i'm gonna have to go away for a long time period so i put away the money to be able to take care of myself right so when i got out um 
the Department of Corrections was doing this thing that they were calling like phase out community institutions. I'm not sure if y'all had that in, in LA. Maybe by a different name, yeah. But what it is 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 like say you serve in your last 18 months, they'll have like a, a a smaller facility inside the inner city so that you can start coming back. They start bringing inmates. The facilities usually don't hold no more than like 250 people or so. Right. They'll house you in a place where your family can start coming to visit you. Because the number one, uh, the number one, the number one thing that can determine if people will go back or if they'll change is their relationships, right? Yeah. So if you get out and you go right back to your streets connections, you're gonna eventually get pulled back. But if your family has become embedded in your life and your family believes in your transition and your change, then that's the number one determinant. Not employment, not level of education, not trade, but if your family actually believes in you and surrounds you and supports you, that's the number one determinant that'll say if somebody will uh, reoffend or not, right? Yeah. So they will house them closer to the neighborhood so the family could be close, but also so the family could see them slowly making a change so that they could trust this new person who's coming back home. Right? Sure, sure. So they built one. They just happened to open up a facility in one of the neighborhoods that I used to have trap houses in. So mm -hmm. everywhere that I used to like sell heavy drugs at, I decided that I wanted to be somewhat positive in that place. So I pull up fresh out and I go to the, uh, to the facility and I ask to speak to the director. And when you a big drug dealer in a city, People know who you are. Right. Me and sure. my case was on the news. So, you know, it kind of people, you know. Right, right. So when I asked to speak to the director, I actually got a meeting with the director. I mind mm -hmm. you, I'm just no offense, nigga off the streets. And I right. get a meeting with right. the director over the facility. And I told him, I'm like on that fresh energy, that fresh out energy, you know how you be on one. And I told him, I said, hey, look, I love what y'all doing. If you give me a wing of the jail, I pay out of pocket to do a reentry center. I was like, you know, you know my background. He's the director for the Department of Corrections over this whole thing. Mm -hmm. He's a high up guy. I started off in juvenile court, city court, state court, or city, county, state, all the way to federal charges. So, you know what I'm saying? I'm known in. Right. And I was like, if anybody knows how to get out and get back on their feet, you know it's me. Because every time I got out, I still own these businesses, I still own these houses. So let me show me how to get out and get on their feet. He agreed, gave me the whole wing. Mm -hmm. So he was like, as long as you pay for it, I trust you. Go have at it. This man gave me the whole wing of the correctional wow. facility. Yeah. Right? So I didn't know what I was doing. I felt like being able to have conversations with dudes, you know what I'm saying? Like I could open up doors, but that was right. just a small part of it. Right. I went to the colleges and I told the colleges, like, hey, this is the opportunity I got. Professors let me talk to their students. I brought students who were in social work, psychology, uh, sociology, early education, you know, all these different formats that are in that kind of lane, criminal justice type yeah. of lane. Yeah. I brought them in and helped me build out the system. It ended up having a highest success rate in the state of Georgia history for law and recidivism at the time. So that caught the eyes of uh, the presidential administration because this was around 2007, 2008. So this was when President Obama was coming in office. And then uh, I got asked that I would help with President Obama's reform for the criminal justice system. So that, I fell into this. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, it wasn't a plan. I just wanted right. to do a right. thing. And that good thing opened one door. And when I got to see all these families get reconnected and saw all these people, yeah. like, oh, yeah. I fell in love with it. Like, yeah. I never, 
all like you, you gotta understand too. I came back in a somewhat different position. I didn't come back like like the person that just needed a job right mm-hmm. off. You, you, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, that so makes a difference. I came back in a somewhat of a comfortable, somewhat comfortable. You, you know what I'm saying? Like I used to have weeks. I made seventy five thousand, twenty thousand, seven euros. So it still wouldn't. My life was a complete life change. When I walked away from drugs, it was a complete life change. But it wasn't like, I don't know how I'm going to eat tomorrow. You, yeah, you know? sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's it's a, it's a level of where you're not desperate and your desperation is driving you back to something that may cause you to go back in. It's not where you were, but you can function. I, I, I get you. And I want to be like, I came back in my hood, like, it was like my when I came back and I put the program in the corrections facility, mm-hmm. it turned everybody out. Everybody was like, "Man, look what we did!" Because you know I represent my hood, right. so it was like the whole hood was behind it. Like you know, what I'm saying, "What can we do? What can? How can we be a part of this?" You know, what I'm saying, like the first street that I ever sold drugs on, I own the entire street. Mm-hmm. But that was my one of my homeboys bought up the street. He had the vision before I even had it. He right. bought it up and then sold it to me. And he was like, well, you need to build your headquarters here. This need to be your campus. It took me years before I agreed. Because in my mind, I was like, I ain't really want to bring it. Like, I like doing programs in the hood. But you got to understand, I've been kidnapped like three times. I've been tortured and left for dead. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if I wanted to bring Go it back to that. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you get what I'm saying? Like, my daughter died at the top of the street where I'm building my campus at. So you got to think of the closeness and the connection. Sure. Of that. Sure. So it's one thing to come and do things back in my hood. It's one thing to have a relationship and connection with my hood. It's another thing to say that my family's legacy will sit right here when this hood killed everybody I love. Yeah. But I still I had to think about the bigger picture of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't blame the dirt. The dirt ain't what did it. It was the circumstances. That's right. That's so right. you got to come that's back right. and change the circumstances, or it's gonna just be a cycle that's gonna fail to repeat. Yeah, for sure. But well, that's that's a, you know, man, it's already a hell of a story and a hell of a transition, you know. And I'm surprised the movie's not out. But if you want to do the movie, you know, all watch TV. We'll we'll do the movie, man. <laughs> I heard that. I, I'm not that kind of person. You know, what I'm saying I do no. documentaries. I do stuff like this. Right. But right. like a lot of people who I love died along the course of me. Yeah, yeah. Down, and that, yeah. that's not going to be somebody's entertainment. You know yeah, what I'm yeah. Like, I, I like, I like, I like what you said there, man. Because you know, it's not, and 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 I didn't mean any disrespect to anybody uh-huh. in that situation. But I like, I like the mindset you have to not capitalize because it's not just about the transition. There's a lot of stories, as you said, and a lot of loss that happened in that. And I, and I think what you're doing already is enough. It doesn't necessarily have to be a movie, but you know, it's just like one of them things when you see people that are in a situation then they overcome and they transcend and they bring others up. You know, that's just like a story that, and like you said, documentary shows like this, people are going to see it. And those stories need to be told as opposed to the things we do see on TV, where it's glorifying or, or just a bunch of garbage that's not edifying to our minds, bodies, and souls. So I just appreciate the story. And and, and so the, the transition is in, is in play. I'm hearing the transition. And see, this is the thing too, right? When you sign contracts, you don't have complete control. Like I got a book that's coming out. It's a teaching. It's a book that's used as a teaching tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took two years or so for us to negotiate the contract over it because, like, I had to be able to have say so of what could be pulled in and pushed, you know, put in the book. 
because it can't turn into something where nothing negative is glorified. Yeah. You know, negative sales. When you glorify negative things, like look at Fifty Cent. Fifty Cent Film Company almost went bankrupt when he was doing like the positive story. When we yeah. started doing like the power and the BML, yeah. he was number one slide on everything. Yeah, how about that? Negative, negative sales, right? But yeah. uh, everything I got come from God. Everything I got belong to God, and everything I got goes back to service to God. So, like, we're not doing that over here. I, I help raise some of my friends' kids who passed along the way, and I never disrespect them. Excuse me, by having them had to sit back and watch the story of how their parent died and somebody didn't yeah. yeah. People don't until you in a certain position, you don't really get the way that that stuff hit and hurt another person. It'd be the love of either the money, the energy, or, or something in that space. It don't have to be illegal, it's just being in love with the wrong thing. That's right. No, I love that, man. It's so now you have making the transition as a nonprofit as a university. You, you have programs across the country in several states um, where you have been able to influence individuals in a positive way based upon you know your experience and your own transformative process of transitioning from that. And, and, and that's, a, that's a huge thing, man, to be able to take your experience and, and what you went through and then to not only have the whereabouts or the wherewithal to rehabilitate yourself, but then to say, you know what, I can do more. I can do more for the people. You know, starting off with being wanting to be and show your daughter you could be better, but to transition and to say, hey, let me let me bring as many people as I can. Let me let me holler at you over here. Let me help over there. You know, and to be able to influence policies at a at a level of, of a presidential level, et cetera, et cetera, state, county, local, federal, all, all inclusive. I want to say, first of all, thank you for that. Um, I know we're coming up on about an hour and we we haven't talked a lot about the actual program and, and all that you are doing in the program. Maybe we, we need an, another show for that. But yeah, I'm just, and I want to be transparent. I'm super sick right now. Like when yeah. I'm telling you, I'm sitting here feeling nauseous right now. Like yeah. I don't want to be too extra, but I, I just threw up before we started. When I say I'm not feeling well today, and I'm, I'm sharing this because I want people to understand service ain't always going to be fun and ain't always going to be what you want to do it. Like me and Brooke tried to have this call for like three days and we kept yeah. having issues. And I'm so sick right now, but I refuse to not do the show because it's God's service. You know what I'm saying? I only got probably a couple more minutes in me. When I tell you, like, it, you know how after you get everything out your system, you feel a little bit better and then like you can feel it coming back. Right. Yeah, so I'm starting to feel like that. So, yeah, you you exerted a lot of energy in this, man, and and with that, you know, I don't have an issue with, with doing a part two. Yeah, we let's do a couple more part two. But I'm, I'm no, just, that's not a, yeah, yeah, a couple more minutes is cool, but you know, I want to do it a part two because I want to bring on and really and focus on all the particulars, the various you know entities of making the transition, so people can you know see exactly what what you're doing, and, and I don't think we I don't want to try to you know, do it justice by cramming it into a few minutes, especially with the energy you've exerted. And I appreciate you making even that comment for listeners to know, hey, service is not always good. You know, I, I'm, I'm sick. It's like the Michael Jordan game six where, you know, he, the flu game or whatever it may be. We only, so I was laying down before we did this so I can have yeah. a little bit of energy. Like I'm yeah. on yeah. this right now. Yeah. No. Yeah. 
I heard you when you came on, and, and I, I appreciate it. I, I imagine you're only going on adrenaline that's pushing you through, you know what I'm saying, to, to get this done. But we, we'll, do another, we'll do another show. We'll get it back and and and, and uh, come back and talk about making a transition as an Okay, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. I, no, I just want to a little bit about, like, the work that I'm doing because I want people to be able to see, like, what God can take you from and take you to, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the same school board, I was arrested for drug charges when I was in the ninth grade. So I never dropped out of school. I got arrested for drug charges and I was never allowed to go back to another school that took federal funding. I'm on the school board for that school system. So like I'm on what's called the commission for the school board. So I oversee like how the money is used for like wraparound services and supports yeah. for children. Um, I'm a consultant. to So my company oversees like certain courts and certain uh judicial system so like we create the reentry programs the alternative sentencing programs the diversion programs the uh intervention for juvenile court and prevention for young adult sentencing right um i'm the same person who was supposed to do life for the drug charges now i get the great programs that says who's going to get a program versus incarceration right and i do that all across the country i have a I got schools that run our programs all the way from New York to Alabama, all the way as far west as Texas. I don't go past Texas because it's like a different culture. Once you like programs need to be built out for people who have specific social determinants and different cultural backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so from New York to like say the very top of Florida to like the west of Alabama. I mean, I'm sorry, west of Texas. Our programs pretty much fit for those demographics. I like I like that. I like that mindset. You know, a lot of and a lot of consulting I've done, I've seen where, you know, they'll bring somebody from, you know, Baltimore to come and solve the problems here in the place in California, which is cool. It's all fine. But a lot of times I'll tell people, you know, you can't just plug in people from anywhere and expect what's happening there to work here because it's not the same culture. It's not, you know, we can have similar problems, but sometimes it needs to be embedded in the culture and and i, I can see that as well yeah because if people can't attach to the tool they're not gonna be able to use them properly yeah but um okay I, i'm starting to feel away but i did want to close out with that because i want people to understand like if you stay the course you can be the change that you want to see you know what i'm saying like you, you don't really change. That, like that's, that's that's great y'all, y'all heard it stay the course you can be the change you want to see yeah. Now, we're going we're gonna to have you come back. I, I'm hoping that we can get you back on next week to do a part two. Hey, for everybody that's listening, I know that you've given a lot to my audience around the world. Again, shout out to everybody in Europe and Africa and Asia, South America, all across the United States, every place folks are listening, even if you are in Antarctica listening <laughs> through one of the platforms, right? I appreciate you coming in. You guys always know we do our very best to bring you the best of what we have. This is Let's Chew the Gum. Remember, email me if you have questions for my guest or myself. If you want to be a guest on the show, you have show topics, let's chew the gum at gmail.com. You guys know I always respond. Sometimes it's late at night, early in the morning, right? Because the work that we do never rests. But we thank you so much. I want to thank you uh, to my guest, Mr. Keith Strickland, from making the transition. I appreciate you sharing the message that you shared. I look forward to having you back. You guys, thank you. And remember, we always have something for your mind. Something for your, for your.